Well, this morning's message will be a little bit different than normal. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, today is the 504th anniversary of the event that many would say lit the spark of the Protestant Reformation, Reformation Sunday. So I want to spend some time reminding you historically of why the Reformation was necessary, why it still matters, why it is significant, and some of the foundational principles that fueled the Reformation. So I want to start our march through history by going all the way back to the Apostles. The Apostles took Jesus' words seriously in Matthew 28 as he ascended to the right hand of the Father after his death, burial, and resurrection. They took seriously his command for them to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. And so from beginning from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth, the gospel spread. And the early church grew despite significant opposition and persecution. Persecution which came largely at the hands of the Roman Empire. And we studied First Peter together and we saw some of that. The, the temperatures of persecution were rising for believers in that time. First century, second century, third century. That is until about the fourth century when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity following in the footsteps of his mother. And Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity at that point became intertwined with the state. And the result was a very mixed bag of both blessings and curses. For with decreased persecution and a rise in political power also came significant doctrinal compromise and corruption in the church. And eventually, supreme religious and political power coalesced around the office of the Pope, who ruled over the Roman Catholic Church, which for many, many centuries was effectively the only church available to most people. There was one choice in town. Can you imagine that? A singular source of truth. Now, the only Bible used in Roman Catholicism at that time was in Latin, a language that increasingly no one spoke except for the highly educated. And of course, the Bible in those days had to be copied by hand, and so copies of the Bible or even small portions of the Bible were enormously expensive, and only the richest of the rich were able to afford such things. Even if you could somehow get your hands on a copy of the Bible, you very likely couldn't read it. So a personal copy of the Bible would be no use to you anyway. The Bible would have been in Latin, even if it had been in your mother tongue, which it wouldn't have been. You couldn't have read it because you were illiterate. The only place where you could hear the Bible read would be at church. Roman Catholic Church. But when you went, you still couldn't understand the scriptures being read because they were only read in Latin and you don't speak Latin. In fact, the entire service is conducted in Latin. And so you attend, but you don't really understand anything that's being said. The closest you get to any understanding is perhaps if it has some stained glass windows and some pictures of events that took place in the Bible. As an average church attender, you know very, very little of the Bible. 
The Bible played very little role in your life, and frankly, it played little role in the day-to-day life of the church. What played an increasingly large role in the Roman Catholic Church was tradition. Tradition meaning the teachings and the doctrines and the rulings of popes and church councils. Many of these rulings and doctrines and teachings had very little or even no biblical support, but were understood to be just as authoritative as Scripture. And the result of all this is that over the centuries, right, we're talking about vast periods of time, a great deal of corruption and false teaching had seeped into the church and spread throughout Roman Catholicism. So that the Bible was often neglected and sidelined while church traditions and church authority became increasingly centralized and the gospel became increasingly obscured. It was into this setting that the German monk Martin Luther lived. He was born in Eisleben, Germany in 1483. He studied November the 10th, by the way. We share a birthday. He studied law, but eventually entered the priesthood as an Augustinian monk after he had made a vow during a violent thunderstorm in which he feared for his life. Early in his career as a monk, he had the opportunity to visit Rome, which of course was the center of Roman Catholicism, even as it is today. And he was disgusted and disillusioned by what he saw there. What he saw was debauchery and hypocrisy and irreverence for God, not just among the populace, but among the clergy, among the priesthood. And he returned to Germany and disillusioned in a kind of a crisis of faith, but he took a new role at the University of Wittenberg as a professor. And in that role, Luther threw himself into the study of God's word, reading, studying, and teaching through the Psalms, through the book of Romans and Galatians. And it was through this study that God began to reveal to him the truth of the gospel that had been up until that time obscured by the teachings and the trappings of the Roman Catholic Church. Throughout his life, Luther had been plagued by the question, how can a person find acceptance with God? How can sinners be welcomed into God's holy presence? How can this be accomplished? For Luther, this wasn't merely some academic question. It was a very personal question. It vexed him. Luther knew his own heart. He knew his own depravity. He knew his own guilt before a holy God. And thus far, the answers of religion had not assuaged his guilt in the least. He had been told through Catholicism that the answer to how can a person have peace with a holy God The answer was to do your best, and in the end, God will be gracious. But this didn't seem to square with the teachings of the Bible. And it was through his study of the Bible, and Romans in particular, that Luther found the answer. And that's the scripture I want to start us all in this morning, and that is in Romans chapter 1. So if you would, turn there with me. If there was a date that we could point to that perhaps sparked the Reformation. It would be October 31st, 1517. And if there was a scripture that we could point to that we would say maybe helped to spark the Reformation, it would be Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Let me read beginning in verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul writing says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for the word of God in our language. Lord, what darkness we would be living in were your word not accessible to us. Were the gospel obscured by man-made traditions and false religions. Where would we be today? What would our life be like? It's hard to imagine. We take so much for granted as we sit with our Bibles on our laps and in our phones and playing on our Bluetooth radios. We're so grateful, Lord, for the blessings that we have, but we also know that with the manifold blessings comes the temptation to take it all for granted. So we give you thanks, Lord, for those who've gone before us, for the previous working of the Holy Spirit, to reveal truth, to spread the gospel. That has come to each one of us in our very own story of someone who knew the gospel, sharing the gospel, and our response of simple faith, believing and trusting. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. That question that nagged Luther more than any other was this. How can one find acceptance with God? How can we have peace with God? Romans 1.17 held the answer and still does. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Reading and studying that afresh, Luther's eyes were opened. It was all by faith, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that we come to be accepted by God and have peace with him. And it was this fresh understanding that led Luther to be increasingly concerned for the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, of which he was still a part, of which he was a monk, an Augustinian monk, teaching in a seminary. You see, one of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church was, and still is today, the belief in purgatory. The Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory teaches that most people who have faith in Jesus must go to a place after death called purgatory. A place of suffering and fire, of purging. This is in order that they might be purified and prepared for heaven and the presence of God. They've got to, they've got to suffer and have the remaining sin in their lives and uncleanness purged. And that's the purpose of purgatory. Now the time you spend in purgatory is dependent on a lot of factors. It's dependent on how sinful you are, were in life. It's dependent on how sinful you remained in death and whether or not anyone still living is doing anything on your behalf to shorten your time in purgatory. You see, Roman Catholicism taught then and still teaches today that there's something called a treasury of merit, meaning that some saints... Some Christians are so righteous during their lifetime that they didn't need to go to purgatory. They were already prepared sufficiently for heaven. And therefore, they had probably a, a surplus of righteousness. A surplus that could be tapped into and used for others to shorten their time in purgatory. And so the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches today that the church alone has the authority to dispense this surplus of righteousness from what they call the treasury of merit. And so along with the doctrine of purgatory came the selling of indulgences. 
An indulgence was an official document issued by the Roman Catholic Church stating that so many years would be taken off of your, love, of your own time or your loved one's time in purgatory. And the amount of time taken off would often, of course, be determined by the amount of money given. And this practice reached new levels during the time of Luther when Pope Leo X decided to build a new and massive church in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica, which still stands, and many of you have toured it. What would be the largest church in the world? To help raise funds for construction, there was enacted a new campaign of selling indulgences. And one of the great, most notorious sellers of these indulgences was a German priest named Tetzel. Maybe you've heard of him. He would go from town to town in very dramatic fashion, explaining in the most passionate and dramatic of ways that the people's departed loved ones were crying out in agony from purgatory, pleading for them to help them to shorten their time of suffering. And they could do so simply by purchasing an indulgence on behalf of their loved one. Tetzel even developed a, a memorable little lyric, a little limerick, a saying, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther was deeply offended by this practice of selling indulgences, and so he set about writing a document that would serve as an initial salvo, a, a proposal for scholarly debate, a document, a poster really, entitled The Disputation on the Power of Indulgences, a document that listed 95 statements or 95 theses. He nailed that document to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg on October the 31st, 1517. 504 years ago today. Now, nailing such a document to the church door was not <laughs> an altogether uncommon thing to do. That sounds, that sounds a, a bit violent in, in our thinking, you know, it sounds like you're doing damage to the church, but it wasn't. Uh, the church door functioned a lot like a community billboard in those days. And so this would have been a very common practice. And it probably, th those 95 theses found themselves on a door replete with other notices and advertisements and things like that. Well, here are the few, a few of the concerns that Luther had. Uh, statement 21 of the 95 Theses. This is what he wrote. Those indulgences, indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Objection number 32. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Objection number 36. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt even without indulgence letters. Number 37. Any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church. And this is granted him by God even without indulgence letters. Number 62, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Now, all of this started out as a sincere desire on Luther's part to bring needed reform within the Roman Catholic Church. He thought certainly that his concerns would get a hearing and be welcomed, there would be debate, there would be conversation. And that the needed reforms would surely eventually come. But it soon became clear that Rome was not in any way convinced by Luther's arguments or his appeal to Scripture. On the contrary, Rome was threatened by it. Luther's 95 Theses soon spread throughout Germany and beyond, thanks in large part to the invention of 
movable type and the printing press, which made mass publication of pamphlets, books, and so forth possible and very affordable and increased the literacy rate among people as they had access to literature in their own language. In the years that followed, Luther would go on to write more, many more things. And his concerns about Roman Catholicism would grow as well as his writings spread like wildfire. In 1521, Luther was called to give account for his writings at an imperial diet in the city of Worms. It's a a trial, essentially. He was being tried for heresy. His books were laid out before him on a table, and he was asked if he would repudiate his writings and recant the things he had taught in them. Luther, a bit blindsided by this, in the midst of a packed room, asked for time to think it over before he responded. And he was given one night. And on the next day, the court official said to Luther, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And Luther answered, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, not embellished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Luther was condemned by that council as a heretic, and a bounty was placed upon his head. But thanks to the care and protection of his regional governor, Frederick the Wise, Luther would go on to live a a full life into old age, even marrying a nun. Katie Von Bora, who made great beer, apparently. (laughs) Luther would go on into old age and over the course of his life would translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into German, giving the German people access to the Bible in their own native language. I think it would be hard to argue that anyone was used more by God than Martin Luther to fan the flames of Reformation and the widespread rediscovery of the true gospel. And of course, Luther was not the only reformer. There were those who came before him, certainly those who came after him. Over a century before Luther, there were early reformers like John Wycliffe in England and Jan Hus in Bohemia. At the same time as Luther was seeking reforms in Germany, there was Calvin and Zwingli who were seeking similar reforms in Switzerland, Knox in Scotland, Tyndale in England, and so forth. But it would be hard to estimate, overestimate the far-reaching consequences of this momentous event in world history 504 years ago today, October 31st, 1517. Nearly every major aspect of life as we know it has been either directly or indirectly impacted by the historic events and the leading figures of the Protestant Reformation. From politics to economics to art to religion to education, there was virtually no area of human interest or endeavor that has not been significantly impacted in some way by the Reformation. Our lives would be entirely different today had the Reformation not occurred. So this morning, we're going to just briefly look at the five biblical truths that sprung up out of the soil of the Reformation. And not only sprung up out of the soil of the Reformation, but actually fueled the Reformation, right? These are the principles that undergirded that 
logically led to what we call the Protestant Reformation. And these five biblical truths are called the five solas. And we're just going to survey them this morning in the time we have left. The five solas of the Protestant Reformation are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. Now, as I said earlier, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, Latin was the common language that united the Western world. It was used in law and medicine and theology and the church. And so we don't use Latin much, so it may not be super familiar to us. The Latin word sola means alone or only. We say someone's going to sing a solo, right? They're going to sing by themselves. No one else is going to sing with them. They're singing alone, right? That's where it comes from. When used of a person, it means you have no companion. It means you are all alone. And the sola in each of these five declarations acts in the same way. It acts as a qualifier signifying that the noun to which it refers, stands on its own, stands alone without any additions or supplements whatsoever. Now the sola of each of these declarations is absolutely critical. If you drop the sola part of each of these declarations, there would have been no reformation. It was the belief and conviction in Scripture alone In grace alone, in faith alone, and in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, which led to and fueled the Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholicism, prior to the Reformation, and even now, would affirm many biblical doctrines pertaining to Scripture and and grace and faith and Christ and God's glory. That's not the issue. The issue is adding the word alone. Adding those solas, the words alone or only, to these same doctrines caused a radical, unbridgeable divide between the Protestant reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, a divide that still exists today and over which the Roman Catholic Church has pronounced anathema on all who believe in these solas. Today, we still believe that Scripture alone teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and all for the glory of God alone. So briefly this morning, let me survey these five biblical truths concerning salvation that necessarily exclude all other truth claims. All right, let's look at sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture alone. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writing to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, From childhood, Timothy, you've known the sacred writings. What's he referring to there? He's referring to the scriptures. Which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. Through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I'm in 2 Timothy 3, 15. I hear pages sort of randomly turning there. Sometimes a signal that I haven't been clear where we are. 2 Timothy 3, 15. And then verse 16 continues. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God has given us everything we need to know for salvation and life and godliness in the Scriptures. The sola of sola scriptura excludes every other source of knowledge 
as being a dependable and trustworthy source for learning about the salvation of our souls and what God wants from us. Every other source of knowledge is excluded. The Quran is excluded. The Book of Mormon is excluded. Also excluded are the traditions of any church or council. Every source of knowledge outside the Bible is excluded as being a genuine, trustworthy, and authoritative source of information for learning about who God is, who we are, what sin is, and how we can have peace with God. Only the Bible provides that information. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. And so we're to be people of the book. People who love the Bible. We don't worship the Bible, but we love the Bible because the Bible points us to the God who we worship. Reveals to us the God who we love and who, more importantly, loves us and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We ought to be, be people of the book. Sola Scriptura. We ought to continually examine every truth claim against the Bible, rejecting those things which contradict. We ought to be a people who say, where stands it written? Show me in the Bible. Teach me the scriptures. As our own statement of faith as a church says, Listen to this. The Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. This is the foundational sola. This sola leads to all the other solas, right? Because it's about how do we know what we know. It's a question of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Where do we go for the answers? Where do we look for truth? In the pages of God's word. Sola Scriptura. All right, that leads us to the second sola. Sola Gratia. Grace alone. The scriptures teach us that salvation is by grace alone. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 7. Paul writes, he says, In him we have redemption through Jesus' blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Our redemption, our salvation is through Jesus, but it is according to the riches of God's grace. In other words, our redemption has as its ultimate source the grace of God. What started it all? What, what was it that prompted God to redeem us? Was it because we looked so pretty? Was it because our lives were so together? Was it because he was so pleased with how we were doing? No, it was all of his grace and solely of his grace. Grace is what? Unmerited favor, right? Unmerited favor lavished upon wrath-deserving sinners. So grace is not getting what you deserve. It's getting what you don't deserve. It's God treating you with favor when you deserved his wrath. That is grace. And salvation, according to the scriptures, is all of God's grace. 
Grace alone. By grace alone we're saved. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. You know this one. Ephesians 2, 8. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We're going to get to that in a minute. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's all a gift from God, right? None of it's been earned. None of it's been deserved. It's all a gift. It is the gift of God, verse 9, not as a result of works so that no man may boast. And that gets to the last sola, which we'll get to in just a minute. There's no boasting. There's no patting ourselves on the back. You're given a gift. By the grace of God, you've been saved. Not of yourselves. Not a result of works. But as a result of God's grace and God's grace alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. It excludes all human efforts. All acts of self-sacrifice. All efforts at self-improvement as being able to save us. None of that will save us. Even our good works are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. No religious involvement, no good works, no effort on your part or mine can ever earn us peace with God or result in us meriting salvation in any way whatsoever. It's grace alone. God's grace alone that saves us. And he gives it to us as a gift. The moment you seek to add anything to grace, anything to grace, it will cease to be grace and become something that you earned or deserved. And therefore, something that you should be congratulated for. A cause for boasting. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Grace alone. The third sola is sola fide, faith alone. Salvation is not only by God's grace alone, it is also through faith alone. Prepositions matter. Salvation is by God's grace Through faith in Jesus Christ alone. All right, so let's look at the through faith alone. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Same verse that we looked at for grace alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, that faith is not of yourselves, that faith is also the gift of God. It's also a product of God's grace. That faith is not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God saves us by his grace, and this grace is received by us through faith, through belief and trust in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead as a substitute and a sacrifice for sinners. So what is the nature of saving faith? What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to trust? Well, the Reformers taught that saving faith involves Three facets, what they called notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. We're getting Latin training today, all right? I'm going to walk through those. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. True saving faith combines all three, all right? Notitia, that is simple knowledge. That is knowing something. You have to know something to be saved, right? Agreed? I mean, if you don't start there, there's no hope for you you got to know something. It's learning some fact. That's notitia. True saving faith cannot come unless one hears the truth that the Bible teaches. One hears the truth of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. You can't be saved. You got to hear it. You got to know it. You got to be aware of it. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You got to have somebody communicating the message. Otherwise, they'll never hear the message to believe the message. So you got to know something. So that's noticia, simple knowledge. A census is the second component of true saving faith. And that is agreement with what you've just learned, with what you've just heard. So not only hearing it and learning of something, but agreeing with it. True saving faith cannot come unless one hears the message of the gospel and you believe that message to be true. You can't hear it and say, no, I don't believe any of that and be saved, right? So you got to hear it and agree with it and believe it to be true. So putting those two together, notitia and a census, notitia is hearing that man walked on the moon. A census is saying, I believe that man walked on the moon. It is affirming the facts we have heard as being true. But as good as that is, it's still not enough to save us. Knowledge and assent are both necessary for salvation, but by themselves they are insufficient for salvation. Because even the demons get that far, right? James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. All right, the demons got that far. They, they've heard the gospel and they know the gospel is true. Does that save them? No. That brings us to the critical issue of fiducia. Fide. Fiducia is not only hearing the truth, believing the truth, but also trusting in the truth for your very life. Entrusting your soul. It is to lean upon the truth, to, to depend upon it as your very lifeline. The story's been told of the 19th century French tightrope walker, Charles Blondine. He made quite a stir by repeatedly crossing over Niagara Falls on a tightrope, stretched between the two banks of the river. And he was famous for doing all kinds of stunts related to that. I mean, you do it once and everybody goes, wow, you know, but you got to keep them coming back. So you got to kind of make it bigger and better. And he would do all kinds of stunts out there, including he drug a, somehow drug a stove out there and he cooked an omelet in the middle of the thing. He, he took one of, you know, those old Civil War cameras, you know, the, the big, big hulking thing. He took that out to the middle and he took a picture of the crowds, set it up. He was also famous for pushing a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. Reportedly, he once singled out a member of the audience before one of these trips, and he asked him several questions along the following lines. He said, sir, some guy in the crowd, do you believe I can walk over the falls on this little rope? Sure, answered the man. I've seen you do it before. And do you also believe that I could push this wheelbarrow across? Yes, I do. And do you also believe that I could do it with a man sitting in the wheelbarrow? Yes, I'm positive you could. You know where this is going, right? <laughs> then, kind sir, would you mind assisting me by getting into the wheelbarrow? No, not on your life. So the man being questioned here demonstrated noticia or knowledge in that he knew the stunt, what the stunt entailed because he'd seen him do it. The man also de demonstrated a census or intellectual assent because he believed the tightrope walker could successfully push a wheelbarrow across the falls. He did not, however, demonstrate fiducia because he was not willing to put his own life into the tightrope walker's hands by getting into the wheelbarrow. 
True saving faith, if you will, is getting into the wheelbarrow. And trusting in Christ and his righteousness for our salvation. Not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our heritage, not trusting in our background, not trusting in anything we've done, but trusting solely in what Jesus has done and the promise he's made to us that if we believe on him, he'll forgive us for all our sins. Faith is humbly trusting in God's gracious provision of Jesus Christ as your substitute. It is believing God's promise that all those who turn from their sin and trust in his son will be saved. It is believing that Jesus is the son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, and that all those who trust in him find forgiveness and eternal life. Fourthly, solus Christus, Christ alone. All of these are necessary, right? I mean, they're just all, you can't pick and choose here. They all go together. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. You can't believe in yourself and get saved. You can't believe in someone else, some other teacher, and be saved. only through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, and His finished work that we are saved. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is one mediator, mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12, the teaching of the apostles. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone. Solus Christus. Excludes all others as the securer of our redemption or as the object of our faith. Jesus alone is the object of our faith. I have no faith in myself. I have no faith in my efforts. I'm an abysmal failure when it comes to living up to God's holy and righteous standards. The object of my faith is not my efforts, but the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Fifthly and finally, soli Deo Gloria. The glory of God, God alone. Again, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, is really the story of God's glory. And how the story of redemption is really the story of God securing his own glory for all eternity. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Three times in Ephesians chapter 1, it makes explicit that the whole purpose of our salvation is to the praise of God's glory. Now, you and I tend to think that it's all about us. That the cross was all about us. Well, it was about us, but it wasn't all about us. It was all about God's glory. In redemption, in redeeming you and I. We are not the center of the universe. And our glory is not the ultimate goal of all things. God's glory and God's glory alone is the central purpose and goal for all things. It's the central message of the Bible and it's the central purpose of redemption and salvation. The glory of God. 
that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. So there's no cause for boasting. He's the source of our salvation from beginning to end. It's all of grace. It's only through Christ. It's simply by faith, which that too is a gift from God. All for the glory of God. Scripture alone teaches us that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This is what every generation must learn and believe and protect and pass on to every succeeding generation. Lest it be covered in darkness and obscured by false doctrine and lost largely by unfaithfulness. In the words of Jude 3, may God help us to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the gospel that it has been preserved for us in your word and by faithful saints who have gone before us. We're so grateful for the freedom to gather, to read the scriptures in our own language, from our own Bibles. We're so rich spiritually. We're so blessed. We're so grateful, Lord, that by your grace, through faith in your Son, we have been reconciled to you, a holy God, and that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So this morning, once again, afresh, we affirm the truth of the gospel. We celebrate it. We proclaim it. And we believe it. Help us to be faithful to protect it, to promulgate it for your glory alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.